0: A good piece of advice that I got not too long ago was to always try to invest early. Now, I had invested previously in two kinds of securities. First, I would invest in companies with solid, well-established businesses and healthy balance sheets. Now, on the other hand, I would also invest in companies that perhaps were making a loss, but I could see that they were investing, you know, investing money into things like R&D that put them in a good position to potentially, in my opinion, Uh, be engaged in long-term growth into the future. Now, the investments that I made came with a certain level of volatility. I personally was okay with them because I believe in the companies, but I understand that stomaching volatility may not necessarily be for everyone. The advice that I got was a little bit more focused on long-term investing into securities that could provide a relatively stable rate of return. So take the NASDAQ 100 for example. According to the internet, The historical mean annual return of the NASDAQ 100 is around 18.9%. Now, of course, there are ups and there are down years, but investing some money at the end of every month, for example, into an index that averages 18.9% a year for, say, I don't know, 30, 35 years, could really total up to be a whole lot of money without you necessarily having to put in a lot of work when it comes to things like equity research or wider economic research yourself. Now, at this point in the podcast episode, I feel that it is important for me to say that none of what I'm saying constitutes financial advice. If you want to make an investment, do so on your own accord, for your own reasons. And if you want to make any financial decisions, do so for your own reasons. And if, you know, if you need help, seek help from a professional. Don't seek help from a podcast or a podcaster on Spotify. Now, going back to the podcast episode, I think it is a fairly widely shared opinion, at least I think it's fair to say so, that long-term index investing could make someone a substantial amount of money due to the effects of compounding, which can sometimes be quite an attractive option given the relatively low levels of risk exposure that you get and the relatively little work that you need to do as an individual in comparison to stock picking. I know some people, uh, my friends, who buy the S&P 500 every now and then, and they don't look back at it at all. So if the market goes up, goes down, they don't care. Every time they get a paycheck, they put a little bit every month into the S&P 500 in hopes of accumulating uh, some money in the back. Index investing in general, I can see has had a massive impact on the world of finance, but it has also had a massive impact on people's abilities to generate long-term wealth for themselves. You see, these indices have been around for many, many years. But people haven't always have you know had the ability to track them through their own investments. Now I'm grateful that ETFs and mutual funds that track such indices exist in today's world. And one man to thank for this is John Bogle, the founder of the Vanguard Group, and one of the main pioneers of index mutual funds. Now it is important to note that John Bogle did not invent the idea of of uh, index tracking funds. John Bogle did not invent mutual funds nor did he invent passive fund management. But what he did is that he made it more available to the mass market for retail investors like you and me to invest. We often take such financial instruments for granted. Nowadays, it's easy to invest in the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ 100 or pretty much any index around the world. But the world was not always like that. So I thought I'd make this podcast episode to talk a little bit about uh, the life and work of John Bogle, And also about this little bit of innovation in the financial world that, in my opinion, has done so much to kickstart and make index investing available to the public so people like you and me can invest. Before I begin, I thought I'd take some time to lay the groundwork for some of the basic terms in this podcast episode. Now, if you already know these, feel free to skip ahead, I'd say skip ahead maybe one or two minutes from now, I don't think it will take too long to sort of go through these basic things. However, for those of you who may be newer to finance, no problem at all, I'll walk you through some of these basic terms to know in order to help you understand this episode. Now normally in my previous episodes I use fairly basic business terms that are either intuitive or I can assume that you already know them. But Well, when I was researching for this episode, I realized that some of these terms are unavoidable, so I'll speed through them. They're really fairly basic in general, to be honest. Let's start with the S&P 500. So what is it? What is the S&P 500? The S&P 500 is a stock market index that basically tracks the performance of the 500 biggest companies listed on American stock exchanges. It often shows itself as a graph. It goes up and down depending on the performance of the 500 companies' stock prices. Because of this, people often use it as a barometer to gauge the overall performance of the US stock market. The Nasdaq 100 is essentially something quite similar. It's an index that tracks the stock prices of 102 securities listed by 101 of the biggest non-financial companies listed on a stock exchange called the Nasdaq Stock Exchange. A little bit removed from that is a mutual fund. A mutual fund is a professionally managed investment fund that uses the money it's pulled from its investors to invest in securities like stocks. Now a mutual fund is priced in at the end of every trading day and you can invest in a mutual fund uh, where the price of the, uh, the mutual fund would track the growth or reduction in value of the assets that the fund itself has invested in. One way of investing in the S&P 500, for example, because you can't just buy an index, you'll have to invest in a mutual fund sometimes, or an ETF, but we're talking about mutual funds in this case, that tracks the performance of the S&P 500 index. One unique thing about mutual funds is that a lot of the time, they either go long on a security, so they rarely ever short a stock. You won't necessarily need to know this concept for uh, for this podcast episode. Now that I've sort of explained these basic things, we can move on to the story of John Bogle and Vanguard and how he made this idea into a reality. John Bogle was born in 1929 in New Jersey to William Bogle Jr. and Josephine Hipkins. Bogle's parents were affected negatively by the Great Depression, which just so happened to also be at around the time when he was born. The family unfortunately suffered financially, and they had to sell their home. Bogle's parents also ultimately divorced. But despite these tragedies, Bogle worked very, very hard in school, and he excelled particularly in mathematics and computational science. He actually went on to study at Princeton University, and he graduated uh, having written a 130-page thesis entitled The Economic Role of the Investment Company. After university, he first ended up working at the Wellington Fund, which I think still exists. Bogle, within Wellington, rose to become the chairman of the company in 1970, so as we can see, he actually spent a big portion of his, um, his working life, his career, uh, as an employee and not as an entrepreneur, which is quite interesting. However, despite coming to this, you know, this top dog position, he was soon fired for making an unwise decision to approve a merger that should not have happened. So, attempting to salvage his career, Bogle started a new fund division at Wellington called Vanguard, which was named after Horatio Nelson's flagship, the HMS Vanguard. Now, while this was a pretty cool idea at the time, executives at Wellington initially disliked the name Vanguard, but they agreed to it after Bogle explained how, for marketing purposes, it would be beneficial because it would be listed alphabetically next to Wellington. Now, I'm not really certain whether Bogle started his first index tracking mutual fund in Vanguard out of necessity, or if this was his intention to do so all along. I think it was a mixture of a variety of different circumstances that led to its creation at Vanguard. So I'll start with the first one. Wellington executives were quite sneaky in my opinion here. They initially did not allow Bogle's Vanguard to engage in any kind of advisory or fund management services, which I don't know about you. In my opinion, that sort of goes against the whole point of starting Vanguard or allowing Vanguard's existence in the first place. The second thing was that Bogle, for a big portion of, of, of his own career, was an active fund manager. What that means was that he wanted to beat the market by actively picking stocks to invest in. However, after analyzing the mutual fund industry, he realized, and I quote, that active funds underperformed the S&P 500 index on an average pre-tax margin by 1.5%. So what that means is that according to his analysis, many active uh, actively run mutual funds were actually losing to the market in the long run. The third thing to bear in mind was that Bogle was influenced by the work of an uh, of a Nobel uh, prize-winning economist called Paul Samuelson, who came up with the idea of efficient markets. Now in in one sentence, I acknowledge that there are many sort of uh, components of the efficient markets theory, but in one sentence, the theory states that it is not possible to beat the markets consistently every year without fail on a risk-adjusted basis. Now, perhaps these three factors sort of came together to cause Bogle to launch an index fund. There was indeed also a loophole around Wellington's executives uh, and their role that Vanguard couldn't manage an independent mutual fund. And it allowed him to kickstart his business in 1976 Bogle created the Vanguard First Index Investment Trust, which tracked the movement of the of the, uh, the &P 500 index. Now at the time, Bogle was actually he had a tough time because he was made fun of by people in the financial sector for introducing passive index uh, tracking funds to the mass market. People argued that the market only provided average yearly returns which wouldn't really satisfy clients. Why would people settle for this when they could go to you know an actively run fund and try to beat the market? But Bogle was firm, and he was firm in his belief that no one could consistently beat the market index every single year without fail. So it made more sense to just invest in the index itself. Further, even if the efficient markets theory was false, say someone proved Samuelson's theory falls. Bogle thought that half of the fund managers in the market would still underperform the index after fees. Hence, he believed that his investment product was something that would cater to investors' needs. Now, With Vanguard, um, Bogle basically provided a new type of fund management service. Instead of trying to beat the market and charge really high fees, Bogle would mimic the market's performance in the long run, with the intention of Generating higher and more consistent returns, uh, more consistent average yearly returns, with lower costs overall. Now, one thing to also note that sort of backs this up is three separate studies done by Bogle, a company called Morningstar, and another company called Research Affiliates LLC. Now, these studies found that in the past thirty years, eighty to ninety percent of American mutual funds underperformed the index. Now. I have to note that I did include this bit of information to basically just show that index striking investing does have its merits, but I acknowledge that I do not know what kinds of uh, mutual funds the studies use to compare to the S&P 500 index, because comparing an actively managed say, I don't know, emerging markets mutual fund, for example, may have provided less returns than the index up until now, but could provide much higher average annual returns in the long run in the future given that emerging economies continue to grow at a fast pace. So the point of this is just to show that index investing is pretty good. It's useful in the long run, but whether, you know, it is fair to say that uh, uh, to, it's fair, at least to, to make the conclusion that index investing, you'll beat a large and overwhelming majority of active fund managers in the long run. I'm not certain if that is fair or not. I'll have to really look into these uh, these research papers a little bit more. Nowadays, there is a passively-managed index tracking fund for pretty much anything. From the more traditional S&P 500, NASDAQ 100 tracking funds, to funds I've seen that track the performance of, say, an index of water treatment companies, for example. There are quite a few out there, and it's pretty wild. Uh, a bit of a theoretical math. Suppose that in some hypothetical universe, someone invests $2,000 a year from the ages 22 to All the way to 27, and then never invests another dollar, pound, or euro in their life again. Suppose they invest their money into a variety of index funds that average. Say the person is making 12% a year on their investments. The S&P 500, for example, has averaged 11.88% a year since 1957. Now, by the age of 65, this person, after never investing another dollar after the age of 27 again they would have around 1.3 million dollars. Suppose this person continues to invest after the age of 27. Theoretically, they could have made even much more money than 1.3 million. Now, of course, one caveat is that no index or fund consistently goes up 12% a year without fail. Some years we face recessions, where the market goes down by, by a whole lot, for example. However, it's important to understand that long-term investing is key. And a correlating mindset to long-term investing is also key. You look at the markets like the S&P 500, they've always historically recovered, whereas some company stocks do not. See, this goes to show that the power of this kind of passive investing that Bogle made available to public retail investors is really, really high, and the impact that it could have on those who can use it wisely. And those who know what indexes or what indices to invest in in the long run. The second thing that Bogle did with Vanguard was allow for a new way for lowering costs to investors. Fund managers use distributors or brokers to sell their investment products to the investors. And the fund manager would then pay a commission to these intermediaries. Bogle chose not to use intermediaries and moved the entire distribution team in house to Vanguard. In doing so, Bogle provided the world's first mutual fund with zero distribution costs. Vanguard has had historically low expense ratios, which has not only helped attract investors to their funds, but has also helped allow Vanguard funds to perform better on an after fees basis in comparison to others who maybe charge higher fees. A third move that Bogle did as an entrepreneur, perhaps less as an investor but more as a businessman, an entrepreneur, Was structure Vanguard a little differently to some mutual fund peers at that time. The owners of Vanguard are not the shareholders. Instead, the owners of Vanguard are the people who invest in their funds. Vanguard is owned by its member funds, which are in turn owned by those who invest in them, people like you and me. Owners have access to things like personalized financial advice, retirement tools, and market insights. The point of this is to allow for greater conviction on the part of Vanguard Portfolio Managers and Executives. Since the investors in the funds are the owners of Vanguard, the fund managers act with conviction on investment themes that are important to the owners. This structure also aligns the interests of the employees of Vanguard and the investors in their funds. There are no conflicting loyalties in the way of them focusing on the interests solely on the interests of the investors and the owners. On top of that, since the investors are also the owners of Vanguard, the company can pass on economies of scale and lower costs of investing to the investors, in turn allowing the investors to keep more of their investment returns in the long run, which is good Like if you are looking to you know, invest and save for retirement, this benefits you. A fourth interesting thing about Bogle, not just an entrepreneur, but also as a man, is the way he ran his business. Bogle, by all accounts, should have been a billionaire. Vanguard was and still is the biggest provider of mutual funds in the world, and the second biggest provider of ETFs in the world. Bogle created trillions of dollars in value, literally trillions, for his investors, and I'm certain played a big role in the financial well-being of many households. But when he passed away in 2019, Bogle's own assets were estimated at around $80 million. In my opinion, 80 million is a very large sum of money indeed, but admittedly and objectively incomparable to many of his entrepreneur peers in the funds industry. So the question is, where did all his money go? Well, a big portion of it went back to Vanguard investors, who still pay much smaller fees than many mutual fund peers. And some also went to Vanguard employees. I read this online, but I, I have to fact check myself on this part. When he was running Vanguard, Vogel would also give half of his salary every year to charity, basically. And in his book, "Enough: True Measures of Money, Business, and Life," Vogel explains the virtues of giving and helping people in need. Now, I often—I know—I often talk about business and starting businesses on on this podcast series, and that you know, I understand that this point about charity and giving is a little removed from the usual topics of discussion. But I think this aspect of Bogle's character is quite admirable, and in my opinion, worthy of respect. I find the story of John Bogle actually quite interesting. He managed to bring something to the modern world of investing that has affected the lives of so many people. As Warren Buffett said, and I paraphrase, John Bogle has done more for American investors than any other person in the field who he knows. Now I've really enjoyed you know, learning more about Bogle and I've learned a lot researching his story. And I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have and hopefully managed to gain a little bit of value from the podcast episode. Before I finish, I just wanted to say again that nothing I said in this podcast was at all financial advice. Please do make your own decisions when it comes to investing, whatever it is you want to invest in, do so by making well-informed decisions and do seek advice from a professional if you need and not from a podcast. I'll see you all in the next episode, and until then, take care of each other.